Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a charming new work by Chinese-American composer Chen Yi. Chen Yi is a professor at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas, where her husband, uh, another eminent and brilliant Chinese-American composer, Zhou Long, is also a professor. And she has a, an incredible class of young students and uh, is a, a wonderful, positive, radiant lady. Uh, this is a piece that she wrote about 11 years ago called Karamur's Summer. And uh, it's about, or at least my original understanding was that it was about the beauty of New York State, particularly the Caramore Festival, near upstate New York, uh, near to New York City, uh, where the St. Luke's Chamber Orchestra plays in the summertime. And so it was a commission from that festival to celebrate their 25th anniversary. And Chen Yi decided to write a piece inspired by the many trips she and her husband had taken by car from their home in Lawrence, Kansas, all the way to the Northeast, not only for their summer visit to Caramore, but for a number of years in the in the 1990s, both of them had been attending various summer festivals and summer programs as teachers, as professors uh, at Bennington College, as well as at Caramore and many other festivals. And so this piece was, in essence, a, a tone poem uh, celebrating the beauty of the region of New England and uh, New York and that whole wonderful area as they approach these various festivals. So I was expecting a rather American kind of piece, even though Chen Yi is, of course, Chinese-born and uh, has a great deal of Chinese influence in her music, but I was quite surprised when I started studying the piece to hear just how Chinese it was. So I called her up at her home in, in Kansas, and I asked her about that, and, and she explained to me in, in great detail, and gave me a wonderful sort of master class on the piece, that in essence, this was her response to the beauty. Her, her In essence, it was a musical response of, of a Chinese person or herself uh, exploring and experiencing these incredible beauties. And so interestingly, the piece comes out sounding incredibly Chinese, uh, and, and she even weaves in little traditional Chinese folk songs to the, to the, the melodic material of the piece. It's about a 13-minute long piece. It's a, a very uh, joyous and celebratory piece with a, a lot of fast music and a, a beautiful kind of slow rhapsodic section before it comes to an end in a kind of a beautiful impressionistic way. So here now to open our program, a work from 2003 by the Chinese-American composer Chen Yi, Caramore's Summer. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, uh, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was the Albany Symphony performing Chen Yi's tone poem, Caramore's Summer. It was conducted by me, David Allen Miller. 
The second work on the program is a work that's very close to my heart, one of my all-time favorite violin concertos, and arguably the greatest of all American violin concertos. It's the concerto by Samuel Barber from the 1930s. This is a, a work that Barber wrote shortly after his student years, so he was still a very young man. It's an extraordinarily romantic, expressive kind of piece. Uh, I always find that uh, Barber's music reminds me, in a certain way, of Puccini, because it is so lyrical and so melodic, but uh, he he often points uh, as his antecedents to composers like Sibelius, uh, who was a great favorite of his. Whatever the influences, it's a, an incredible work of a young composer just finding his way. Uh, it had a very odd uh, journey into the world. Barber had been a close friend of a violinist named Isso Briselli, a very brilliant young violinist by all reports, uh, when the two were attending the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia as students. And as Briselli's career began to take flight and uh, his fame began to spread, uh, he uh, very much wanted a new concerto that he could in essence own, that would be his own, uh, and that he could bring around the world to enhance his career. And it happened that Briselli had a, a sponsor, a very wealthy uh, Philadelphia industrialist named Samuel Fells, and Mr. Fells graciously agreed to commission the composer of Iso's Choice to write a new concerto, which in fact he did. And Iso, knowing and very much liking Sam Barber's music, commissioned Barber to write this concerto. So Barber went off to Switzerland for the summer and penned two very beautiful movements, the first and second movement, both very lyrical and, and interesting in that they, they were not particularly violinistic tour de forces, and the violin was very wonderfully integrated into the body of the orchestra. From the very opening of the piece, uh, it's not one of these flashy soloists uh, showing off with a little bit of minimal accompaniment. Quite the opposite. It's the violin surrounded by a beautiful orchestral texture doing very uh, lyrical and wonderful things. So Barber sent the two movements to Briselli, who played them through and liked them very much. But then Briselli made the mistake of bringing them to his, his teacher at the time, a gentleman who, who said that basically he thought they didn't show off Briselli's virtuosity enough and that they really needed to be renovated by none other than him, the teacher. Sam Barber, of course, bristled at this idea, but decided to go on with the project and complete the piece. And so he and Briselli had, a, I guess, a discussion or a meeting, and Briselli asked that since the first two movements were so very lyrical, he hoped that Barber would write a very virtuosic finale to, to show off all the virtuosic skill that Briselli had. So Barber began work on this finale, and then it's a little bit vague as to what exactly happened, but Mr. Fells got wind from the teacher that he wasn't entirely happy with the piece, and there was a question as to whether the piece should be completed or whether they should go find another composer, and uh, it began to become a bit of a, a problem. Sam Barber wrote the finale, but he ended up writing a very odd and unusual finale. The finale, after these two very extensive, expansive movements, is this very brisk, very short, and very brusque movement. It's unbelievably virtuosic. It's what we call a moto perpetuo, meaning perpetual motion. The violinist never stops and just keeps playing. It was as if Sam Barber was saying, if this guy wants a virtuosic violin part, I'm going to give him one in spades. So it's this absolutely punishingly difficult, logistically difficult between the soloist and the orchestra uh, movement that lasts barely three minutes and it's just a, often ends in tears, dare I say. Not in our performance, of course, but in certain less skilled performances. 
So he sent that along to Bruselli, and Bruselli uh, basically, there are various versions of the story, but Bruselli basically said, you know, I really just don't feel like this finale does what I, I want it to do, so I'm going to pass on the piece and not perform it. And Barber was rather hurt, but was actually more concerned, being a young composer with payment. He'd been promised, I think, $500. And actually, there's even a question as to whether he had to go to court to get Mr. Fells to honor the commitment. But ultimately, Mr. Fells did pay him the uh, the commission fee. And Barber actually uh, had to prove that the piece was playable and recruited a young student at the time who was currently a student at, at Curtis uh, who learned it in an hour or two and played it to prove that it was in fact playable. Barber got his money. Bruselli didn't play it. And it ended kind of sadly, but according to recent scholarship, the, the earlier story was that it was a huge problem. The more recent scholarship suggests that Bruselli and, and Barber stayed friends and had great res- continued to have great respect for each other and that it became a little bit of a tempest in a team pot, whereas earlier it was thought that it was a huge legal battle, etc. So whatever the case, the piece does have a rather unusual formal structure, again, because it has these two very expansive opening movements. First movement, very uncharacteristically broad and lyrical. I try to make sure that we observe his metronome mark. Sometimes it's played rather slowly, and then it sounds like two slow movements back to back. Uh, And the second movement, one of the most beautiful of all slow movements in, in the entire violin and orchestra repertoire. This is a, a, a piece that begins with a gorgeous oboe solo that's eventually revealed as the main tune of the violin line. Incredibly heartachingly beautiful and rich, and this wildly, almost out-of-control, meteoric finale. Ultimately, the piece was taken up by the Philadelphia Orchestra. Eugene Ormandy heard it and uh, was so impressed that he scheduled it, so it was premiered there. And it went on to have this incredible life, much to uh, the the sadness for Mr. Briselli, who could have owned the premiere and, in fact, passed on it. So uh, whatever the, the nature of that story, it has entered the repertoire. It's a glorious piece. And in this performance, I'm delighted to be joined by a very young violinist who's just starting out on her career. Her name is Simone Porter. She's 17 years old, and she's a student at the Colburn School in Los Angeles, which is an amazing music conservatory, which is barely 10 years old, which is right across the street from the Disney Hall in downtown Los Angeles, and uh, was the legacy of a great man named Richard Colburn, who, when he died, left much or most of his fortune to the building and the continuation of the school, which actually had existed as a a settlement school uh, for many years before, but he turned it into this incredible conservatory. It's still a settlement school open to the general public for uh, high school and younger students, but this very elite Curtis-like conservatory uh, for college-age students. Simone is a first-year student in the college conservatory where she's a student of a dear friend of mine, one of the greatest violin teachers in the world, a man named Robert Lipset, who's turned out just unbelievable virtuosi. And I must say, I was so delighted that not only did Simone come across the country from Los Angeles to perform this with us, but Bob Lipset took three days off of his exceedingly busy schedule and his 30-some students uh, and jetted across the country and spent the, the days with us preparing the piece and making sure that Simone was showed off to her very best advantage. So you're in for a, a great treat to hear this young violinist give her her debut f- performance in The Barber, uh, her debut performance with the Albany Symphony. Simone Porter playing Samuel Barber's violin concerto accompanied by the Albany Symphony conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music.
supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The second half of our program was taken up by one monumental masterpiece, sort of a, a classical masterpiece. It's Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade, his incredible four-movement tone poem, not to be mistaken for a symphony, because he was very clear that even though it was in four movements and it looks and sounds and seems a little bit symphonic, it is in fact a tone poem, or dare I say four tone poems, telling the story uh, a very in a very broad term, in very broad terms, of Scheherazade, that great tale from the Thousand and One Nights or of the, the Arabian Nights, as they're also known. If you remember the Arabian Nights at all, you remember that in essence the Arabian Nights are, are the set of very exotic Eastern, what they used to call Oriental tales, that were woven by a young woman named Sherazade. The, the background story is that the Pasha or the king, Shariar, has uh, married the last available woman in the kingdom. It seems that earlier on he had married a young woman and loved her very much and she had betrayed him. Uh, had been an adulterer and so he had had, of course, her head chopped off and then in his rage had decided that every day he would marry a different young virgin from the neighborhood and at the end of the day have her head chopped off as well. Well, as you can imagine, the number of virgins left in the neighborhood diminished rather dramatically and the only one left was this lovely young lady named Shahrazad. And Shahrazad uh, was much too smart for the king. In fact, she starts weaving a tale on the first night of their marriage and gets deep into the tale. And just as it's time uh, to end, she cuts off the tale mid-story mid and says, I I'm sorry, but uh, if you want, I, I can tell you the rest of the story tomorrow night. And the king decides, well, I can't cut her head off yet. I need to hear how the story continues. And so every night she weaves yet another tale and interrupts it somewhere in the middle after completing the prior tale and thus stays alive for a thousand nights, after which uh, the king throws up his hands and decides, you know, I really like this young lady and uh, I don't want to cut her head off. I'm going to marry her and they ostensibly live happily ever after. So Rimsky-Korsakov, uh, who loved all things Eastern and exotic and Oriental, decided to, to turn this very famous story into a, a gigantic tone picture, about a 40-minute, 37-minute long work. And so at a certain point, he assigned specific tales to the stories, and uh, you often will see them referenced. And then, then later on, he eschewed the, the, the storylines, the, the actual tales entirely, and said the piece should be heard really just as a sort of general evocation of this exotic world of Scheherazade. What's undoubtedly true is that this is one of the great masterpieces in, in Russian musical literature, particularly the nature of the, the sort of uh, Eastern-sounding exoticism that, that Rimsky-Korsakov deploys, and more than anything else, the extraordinary sensitivity and invention of the instrumentation of the orchestration. Rimsky-Korsakov, you know, was the, the youngest member of this group of uh, Russian nationalist composers who really established Russia as a, a serious force in the world of concert music in the 19th century. You know, among those five were uh, Mussorgsky and Borodin. The sort of leader was Balakirev and then uh, some other composers as well. But Rimsky-Korsakov was the youngest and uh, he was in essence, in a certain way, the, the least well-trained as a young man. And then he was appointed to be the professor of composition at the Moscow Conservatory and thought, oh my gosh, I'd, I'd better learn something about the rudiments of composition. And so he became actually a very learned, very expert figure in, in harmony and in, in structure and form, and in a way became sort of the most Germanic of all of these Russian uh, exotic, creative, whimsical composers. 
And if you've ever seen pictures of him later in life, he had a big beard and looked like a very foreboding presence. But obviously he was a great teacher and educator. He was in fact Stravinsky's primary teacher and Stravinsky credited him with much of his own brilliant uh, ability to, to write exotic music and to orchestrate. So Rimsky became known as really one of the greatest orchestrators of all time, wrote a great textbook on the subject, which is still used, and you find his unbelievably inventive orchestration just throughout uh, Scheherazade. It's for a rather conventional orchestra, and yet he elicits the most incredible sound combinations in the piece. Uh, what's so wonderfully evocative about the piece is that it features very prominently, prominently throughout the piece, solo violin cadenza that is essentially Sherazad telling the story. So after a very brief introductory explosion, you hear the solo violin played very eloquently by the Albany Symphony's concertmaster, Jill Levy. It's in essence Sherazad weaving her first tale. And throughout the piece, in each of the movements, usually at the beginning, but sometimes in the middle, and then at the very, very end of the piece, Sherazad continues her, her discourse. So the, the orchestra stops and you hear these beautiful solo violin cadenzas, very virtuosic, very beautiful. Uh, that's Sherazad telling the story. The first tale is the tale of Sinbad and his ship. So it's a, a piece that really evokes the incredible violence, dare I say, of the sea, these wild waves of musical sound that really, to me, are as good an evocation of of the ocean as any composer has ever had. The second movement is the tale of, a, of the Kalandar Prince, a very exotic, very multifaceted, lively kind of dance movement. The third movement, in essence, a, a depiction of, of a love affair, the young prince and the young princess, beautiful, heartfelt, wonderful love music, in essence. And the last movement, the most complicated and interesting of the movements, because it recapitulates a great deal of the music from the earlier three movements, uh, is kind of a, a multifaceted movement in that it starts with the festival at Baghdad uh, and then continues to a, a ship at sea and then a shipwreck against the, the, the cliffs. And then finally, this wonderful uh, resolution of the piece with Shirazad ending her tale and Shirazad and the king uh, deciding to live happily ever after. So here it is now, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov's magnificent tone picture, or four tone pictures, Scheherazade. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony with a solo violinist, concertmaster Jill Levy, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.